We'll hear argument now, number 991571, Traffics Devices, Inc. versus Marketing Displays, Inc. Mr. Roberts. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The President and founder of Marketing Displays, Incorporated, MDI, invented a new type of sign stand, one with a dual spring design that allowed the stand to resist the wind. MDI patented that invention, and for the term of its patents, MDI labeled its sign stands as patent-protected to warn off copiers, touted in its trade literature the benefit of its, quote, patented dual-spring design, end quote, and when another company, Windproof, tried to market a copy of MDI's patented stand, MDI sued it for patent infringement and won. But then MDI's patents expired, as, under the Constitution, all patents eventually must. Sometime thereafter, after Traffic's Devices, the petitioner, copied MDI's stand, added some improvements of its own, and marketed a competing version. No longer armed with its patents, MDI tried a new tack to exclude competition. It claimed that the configuration of its stand, the same dual spring design that it had touted as patent protected during the term of the patents, was protected as trade dress and could not be copied. Mr. Roberts, how do we determine what the patent covers? Does it — I mean, I can look at it, but I'm still not sure. I think in, in the record, in the material here, we have a copy. Does it include, in this case, the legs and the whole structure or just the dual spring? And how do we normally determine? What the patent covers. Well, in this case, of course, it's easy to determine that the patent covers this particular sign stand because MDI labeled that sign stand as patent protected. The whole thing? The whole sign stand, yes. It's Legs, spring, whole, and all. And all. But in its trade literature, for example, it's focused on the dual spring design. That is what makes the invention work. That's what allows it to resist the wind. And it said, this is our patented dual spring design. Um, and, of course, it not only labeled the stands, but in its trade literature. And then in the windproof case, it sued when somebody made an exact replica, the same replica that traffic's devices. So under your is. view of the case, if the legs that uh, the patentee had had a very special color, like the John Deere green or something, um, that could be copied after the patent ran? Because I noticed in, well, in the pictures that the, the legs were orange in your client's uh, uh, Stan and, and, and aluminum and the other? Well, uh, incidental ornamentation that is not part of what the patent protects uh, does not give rise to the right to copy. There, is, there should be an exact symmetry. Whatever the patent had protected as part of the patent bargain, the public has the right to copy. Now, the color of the legs probably would not have been claimed in the patent um, and wouldn't have been part of the invention. Uh, and therefore, it would not give rise to a right to copy that color. In any event, they're different. In this, uh, if I'm looking at the right diagrams, the, uh, your client has a different has the orange color. Well, it depends on which stand is involved. The steel stand is one color, and the aluminum stand is is another. But in terms of what they claimed in the patent as the the, the 
the part that makes the invention work. It's not the legs that made this an invention. It's not the sign. It is the dual spring design. That's what they said was patented. When they marketed this, when they had the exclusive right to do, do so, they focused on that in their trade literature and said, this is our patented dual spring design. And that is the same claim they now raise in their trade dress but assertion. Mr. Roberts, didn't the Court of Appeals say, at least as I understood it to say, okay, the dual springs — traffics could have. But you have to devise some kind of other stand, curved legs or the double stand. It said, we, it said we basically had to design around their stand. Now, if they said you could use three springs or four springs, I guess it would never end, five springs, <laughs> or you could put a little skirt around the springs so people wouldn't see them, or, as Your Honor points out, if you're going to use the springs, you have to change something else so it doesn't look like it. But that's not what this Court's cases have held. What the Court has said, Singer and Kellogg uh, and Sears, is that the public has the right to copy the patented invention in precisely the form in which it was practiced. And that's critically important. The idea of designing around uh, what had previously been patented is a significant hindrance to competition. And this case is a good example. When we copied the sign, we added an important improvement of our own, the step-and-drop leg. Under MDI stand, you have to bend over and pull the pins out. Under ours, you just step and the legs come out. Now, if, if the rule were the rule that the respondents are arguing for, we would have had to add that new improvement to some different sign stand. But the right to copy attaches to the product as it was practiced during the term of the patent. We don't have to design around their superior stand. That's why it was succeeded in getting the, the patent to add improvements of our own. Does, does it depend in part on how we define functionality under the trade dress, dress inquiry? We think there is a freestanding right to copy from an expired patent that doesn't depend upon what functionality is. And you think that there can never be a trade dress protection in some aspect of an expired patented item? If the item was simply incidental ornamentation, one of their amici used the example if you're patenting a chair and the drawing shows a purple bow. Well, we don't think there's a right to copy the purple bow because the purple bow is not covered. That's not the invention. So there could be a trade dress in a, an expired patented item? In the item itself, yes, but not in the subject of the patent. And I suppose that depends on how we define functionality, in a sense. Functionality, I think, leads to the same place that we come to from looking at patent law, if you define functionality as it has traditionally been defined as turning on usefulness. If, if, functionality, if functional means useful, then our case comes out the same way, because you have to be useful to get a patent. And if it's been the subject of a patent, the feature has been useful, therefore it's functional, therefore it's not eligible for trade dress protection. No, Justice, Justice O'Connor's question su suggests this to me. Uh, you're arguing for the rule that you maintain here so that you will uh, not have to litigate functionality. Exactly. And functionality... But why isn't functionality sufficient protection, uh, it, particularly in this case? Functionality is sufficient if functionality means useful. But if functionality means, as the lower court said in this case, uh, uh, something for which 
there is a competitive need or for which there are not available alternatives, and there's a multi-factor balancing test to determine so-called legal functionality. Well, I guess the Court, the Sixth Circuit, pulled that out of Qualitech's opinion, the well, competitive we th- need. I don't think Qualitex opined on the exact definition of functionality in this case, or it was misread by the lower court. The definition in Qualitex had a very important connector there. It said a, a, a useful product feature or, and then it went on to talk about competitive need. So, so as far as you're concerned, if it's useful, then it's functional. Period. Without regard to competitive need, available alternatives, MDI's position is, look, you can make a sign that stands up to the wind that's just as good as our sign stand, so don't make it the way we made it. But the patent, the expired patent, gives us the right to copy. Well, it gives you this. I I think my question is related to Justice O'Connor's, and this is is a problem that that I have in understanding, and maybe, maybe you can help me. You have a right to copy the invention. Does it follow that you have a right to copy the configuration that that invention took in the hands of the, of the patent holder? I, I think Justice Brandeis's opinion in Kellogg answers that. Kellogg did not have to show that there was no way to make or sell shredded wheat other than in the pillow-shaped biscuit form that Nabisco had made famous when it had its patent. It was enough that that was the form in which Nabisco had practiced its patent. Kellogg, therefore, could copy it, uh, even though they could have made shredded wheat some other way. And that's important precisely because of the purpose of the patent bargain to promote competition. As I said, why, if we have an improvement to this sign stand, the step-and-drop legs, why should we have to add it only to a very different sign stand? It's the commercially proven version that the public has the right to copy. That is important to enhance competition, to require people, if they're going to make improvements, um, uh, to design around the form that the public had become accustomed to would inhibit competition. If we were dealing, Mr. Roberts, with just uh, the patent law, uh, that would be one thing. And as I understand it, although it's confusing, the word useful is is a patent term of art, and functionality is a is a trade dress term of art. But you're trying now to equate these two terms and answer to questions that you've had as one and the same, but they have different purposes, as I understand it. In the patent law, the idea of useful, trade dress, the idea of functionality, you recite the old cases like Kellogg. It's been argued that on the trade dress side, the law has evolved since those old cases, and it's now trade dress uh, gets more protection. Uh, you're, yes, you're dealing with what is in the trade dress area essentially judge-made law, um, and it has expanded in various ways. And functionality, it doesn't interfere with the patent bargain if functionality means a broad range of other things, but so long as it is also satisfied completely by a demonstration that it is a useful product feature. There may be other limitations on a trade dress claim, going to competitive need, available alternatives, any of the various multi-factor tests. But if functionality is going to serve the purpose of demarking the regime of 
trademark and trade dress and patent law, it must be satisfied by showing that it is a useful product feature. And in our case, that's significant because you can't get a utility patent as MDI had, without showing that it's a useful product feature. So the fact that they had a utility patent, that it covered the dual spring design, should be enough to establish functionality and therefore should be enough to reject their trade dress claim. Do you, do you agree that at least one basis on which we could, could decide this case would simply be on the, the, the basis of how expensive a concept of configuration, configuration trade dress we want? Because if we take your position, configuration trade dress is going to be, at least in, in formally patented matters, uh, a, a, a pretty narrow concept. And if we're going to have coherence within the concept of configuration trade dress, we're going to have to make it equally narrow. I mean, we can't have different, different functionality tests, I presume. Uh, and if, on the other hand, we, we find good reason to, to, uh, to, to think configuration trade dress is desirable, then we're going to go the other way with a, uh, with a, a, a different concept of functionality, I suppose. I, I think it, it is the expansion of the concept of configuration trade dress that has given rise to this issue and the problem. If you go back to where trademark was limited to marks on the product, of course, the product could be patented. The trademark is fine. If you even then go the next step and you're talking about trade dress and packaging, again, so long as it's distinct from the product, there's no interference with patent. But when you start saying that the configuration of the product itself is entitled to protection as trade dress, you bump right into the patent law. Because the key to the patent bargain is if you're going to control a useful product feature, as the Court said in Qualitex, that's the regime of patent law. And it's no answer to say, well, we'll protect it by patent law, and when the patent expires, we'll protect it under trade dress law, because that takes away the public's half of the patent bargain. We give an exclusive right to an inventor for a term of years on the condition that he or she disclose what the invention is and that the public obtains a right to copy it when the patent expires. So, yes, I mean, it is the expansion of product configuration trade dress that has given rise to this problem. And I would at least suggest that the Court should not get on board with that expansion without waiting for Congress to say something about it, particularly given the fact that it so directly impinges upon the central patent bargain underlying the patent system. Of course, Mr. Roberts, <coughs> you rely heavily on the patent in this case, and that's the question presented. You presented only that, that narrow question. But I take it you would argue, if there had, even if there had been no patent issued in this case, no patent application, that, that this was nevertheless functional. Certainly, yeah. yes. Um, and uh, the, the, the fact of the patent really is just evidentiary support for the ultimate conclusion that this is a functional feature. Well, it gives rise to an important distinction. In other words, having been covered by the patent, another producer knows that when it comes off right. patent, he can copy it. And, and that's how it worked in this case. Uh, traffic's devices knew they were in the business. This was a patented sign stand. They couldn't make it. It comes off patent. They can make it. Now, if they at that point had to, instead, if respondents' position were adopted, they had to go to their lawyer and say, is this legally functional? Their lawyer would tell them, well, it depends. There are six factors in this circuit. There are eight factors in the other circuit. We've got to get expert economic testimony. It depends on consumer surveys. By that time, the producer says, forget it. It's not worth uh, the candle. I'll go make something else, and competition suffers. The difficulty, I guess, is would you make the test absolute? Because if you make it absolute, you know, you're going to get into huge litigation about whether this thing in the patent was or was not an essential element. 
And then somebody will say, oh, yeah, I guess I did include it as one of the specifications in the platen, but it really wasn't that important. I mean, should you make it absolute never, or should you allow uh, somebody to defend on the ground that, look, it wasn't that crucial to the, to the patent, and everybody's come to identify it, and please let me make an exception here, and then they give some fabulous reasons. Should it be absolute or leave them a, a, a little bit of a loophole? Well, you know, a little bit of a loophole suddenly expands, particularly when you have a multi But it does both ways, because if you allow no loophole, you're going to get the same kind of arguments about whether it was or was not an essential part of the patent. Well, of course, in this case, it's easy. The key to the invention In this is case, the it dual, may be easy, the but the question space. is, what about the rule? And producers all the time uh, compete in the confines of patents. They have to look at a patent and decide, can I make a competing product or not? So it's not a new inquiry. And in the typical case such as this, where you have a product coming off patent, you will have the conduct of the patentee, which will illuminate exactly what he thought was covered. Here we not only have the, the labeling and the trade literature, we have the windproof litigation. Someone made the exact same sign here, and he said, aha, that infringes my patent. Well, if it did infringe his patent, and the Ninth Circuit concluded it did, then the public has a right to copy. I'd like was to it reserve. The, was it the exact same sign? I thought one of the points that was made was that in the patent infringement case, that sign didn't look as much like the um, market display. Yes. The, the patent displays a what they call a business sign with two springs far apart. The traffic sign, the one at issue in Windproof and at issue here, the springs are closely together. MDI argued successfully that that made no difference, that the two closely spaced springs were covered by the patent to the same extent as the farther apart springs. Very Thank well, you, Mr. Honor. Roberts. Uh, Mr. Wallace, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, our brief is built on the premise that the functionality doctrine, the traditional functionality doctrine of trademark law, is what makes trademark uh, uh, protection of trade dress and, and other symbolic elements uh, uh, consistent with uh, this Court's patent law jurisprudence as uh, synthesized and reaffirmed as recently as the Benito Boats uh, case. But I, I think part of uh, uh, the reason uh, the two laws harmonize is because the use of functionality doctrine is to limit the scope of protection of the, the uh, device. Uh, its traditional function was uh, to uh, bar uh, the holder of a patent or other utilitarian device, even if non-patented, from withdrawing that device from the public domain when there's no longer the protection of the patent um, as trade dress, uh, withdrawing it from the public domain as trade dress because people have a right to practice 
uh, and use as the building blocks for further innovation whatever devices are in the public domain that are utilitarian in nature, including their overall configuration. But there is still protection against confusing similarity through requirements of labeling, packaging, uh, avoiding palming off and other misrepresentations. Functionality really goes to the scope of protection and limits the scope of protection available under trademark law by preventing someone from monopolizing and withdrawing from the public domain utilitarian features or the entire utilitarian device in the absence of valid patent protection. That is the domain of patent law, and one must qualify for a patent and have a valid patent in order to have uh, a, a a legal monopoly that withdraws, uh, that prevents others from using the device. Um, but there, as I say, these other protections are still available as well as uh, the ability to exclude ornamental or incidental features. Uh, that is what to us harmonizes the two statutory schemes. Uh, the, the traditional understanding of functionality was not an artificial concept. It was the ordinary meaning of the word. Uh, um, what enables the device to function is what is functional. Um, that was reflected in a, uh, a very terse quotation we have in a footnote on page 17 of our brief uh, by Representative Lanham himself when someone raised concerns about uh, whether uh, uh, the trademark law might uh, result in compromising of the public's right to use useful inventions. And Mr. Wallace, said, may I ask if, if you would answer the question that Justice Stevens posed to Mr. Roberts in the same way, that is, the definition you're now giving us as a functional sounds like you would come out the same way on this alleged trade dress infringement, even if there had never been any any patent in the picture, because this sign, all the ingredients are functional. There's no purple bow on it. That is absolutely correct. We would come out the same way as as we were. Um, I, I think this Court's decision in Bonito Boats is an example of that because there was no patent shown in the record, as the Court noted, of the boat hull that they said could not be copied. So your, your position is the utilitarian feature of the patent is a conclusive presumption in a trade dress suit where functionality would otherwise be at issue? with regard to the scope of protection, that others cannot be excluded from using something utilitarian. As we compressed our brief down to our allotted 30 pages, we carefully preserved a quotation on page 11 that you can see at the top of the page from a 1917 uh, or 1911, excuse me, Seventh Circuit decision, because it, it states the common sense of it. 
if you have uh, utilitarian features that didn't even meet the standard for getting a patent, uh, they should not be given a perpetual monopoly in contrast to what was then the 17-year monopoly that you could get uh, if you met the criteria for patentability. Uh, um, the, uh, the other protections available against confusing similarity um, make the need for a right to exclude uh, 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 imitation of trade dress relatively unimportant compared to the policies this Court has reiterated at least since 1896 in the Singer case uh, uh, about the, the need for um, uh, utilitarian features to be used as building blocks and to be in the public domain except for the limited period of time in which they are protected by a valid and, and uh, unexpired patent. And we understand this Court's decision in Qualitex to mean much the same thing. The difficulty has arisen because an alternative test of functionality um, has also become appropriate as the scope of trademark protection has extended to matters that don't have utilitarian features to them. We point particularly to the protection of color as an example where there is, is uh, um, uh, uh, relevance to looking at competitive need. Uh, um, in, uh, uh, we give an example in our brief of an orange-colored can of soda. Uh, uh, there were other amicus submissions in the Qualitex case in which people were making claims that raised issues that went quite beyond uh, uh, what was involved in the uh, uh, press pad that was at issue in Qualitex. One of them, for example, involved orange-colored sprinkler system piping. Well, it raised other questions. I don't say the result would necessarily be different, but one would have to examine whether a competitor who wanted to compete for replacing a portion of the piping uh, uh, would be disadvantaged if he couldn't match the color of it. Uh, it, it, it was a different case from the Federal Circuit's Corning, Owens Corning case involving the pink insulate, pink colored insulation, because that goes behind the wall and people don't see it. Um, it, it the orange coloring in some contexts is, it connotes danger and perhaps, uh, uh, there is marketing, uh, significance to that. But, the mistake that I think some of the courts of appeals have made, including the Sixth Circuit in this case, is to say that that is now the exclusive approach, and you wind up with multifactored tests that don't really uh, give an adequate guidance to what the law is. A very good example is found on page 17 of the uh, uh, light green amicus brief, filed by the International Trademark Association in this case, in which they speak approvingly of various multifactored tests that the courts of appeals have adopted in this area, which leaves open what this court, in its salutary opinion in Walmart against Samara Brothers, referred to as the 
the plausible threat of litigation, which can discourage and, uh, and uh, competitors and become an impediment to the benefits that consumers would get from uh, uh, competition. And uh, to have uh, tests of this kind applied to displace the traditional approach to functionality would be very detrimental to competitors for the very reasons the Court has recognized in the cases synthesized in the Benito Boat's opinion. Mr. Wallace, I'm, I'm not sure what your proposal is, that, that we use the simple test for what? For useful features, that is, that, that whether or not they are patented, and the more complex test for, for what? It, 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 it both either test can show that uh, an, uh, something is functional, whichever one uh, uh, suits the, the needs of the particular uh, factual situation. Thank you, but, Mr. Wallen. Uh, Mr. Arts, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court granted certiorari uh, due to conflict between regional courts of appeals on, on one issue, and that is whether or not the visual image and appearance of a product, with the product whose operation and performance was covered by a utility patent, can still be protected as trade dress under Section 43A of the Lanham Act. The imposition of any per se rule, whether the government's rule or traffic's rule, which says it cannot be protected, in my opinion, is it unnecessary, unjustified, and unworkable? It's unnecessary because there are already adequate rules in place. The trade dress rules and functionality that have been referred to already. It's unjustified because it would cause harm to the public's right not to be confused or deceived. Those are paramount in trade dress and trademark cases on the Lanham Act. That's a touchstone of the Lanham Act. It also but be it's a touchstone of patent law that an expired patent can be copied. So we really do have to make the two doctrines mesh well. Yes. And the concern we have is with this expanded competitive need test that some of the lower courts have begun employing. And I, I'm quite interested to know how you think the two doctrines can fit neatly together, because in an ideal world, a trade dress could not cover something that was covered by a patent that's now expired. Uh, well, uh, Justice O'Connor, the, uh, the mediating factor between the two is the functionality test, uh, in my opinion. There's, you've got the patent laws, you've got the trademark laws, and the Lanham Act, two and federal it's laws. it's possible that some of the courts have lowered the bar too much on the functionality inquiry. I mean, I, I think that's what we need to look at. Well, the, in the Qualitex case, the Qualitex gave a, a specific definition of functionality. Um, and remember now, in 1998, 1999, Congress made some amendments to the Trademark Act, the Lanham Act. And in this, they specifically mentioned functionality several times. They added it to uh, uh, the fact that you can't have functional trademarks. You can't have a trademark that's functional, but if it's non-functional, you can and they knew about the Vernado case at that time because it was decided in 1995. That's the Tenth Circuit. There's a lot of flurry of activity in the uh, intellectual property bar because of that. So all that was before Congress when it amended it. And Congress did not go to any per se test at that time. 
And so you've got two federal laws here, and under the Morton case and the Garocco House case, which are cited. Uh, if you is, have there, is, there, is there evidence, Mr. Arch, that Congress uh, in a, uh, affirmatively approved the Tenth Circuit case? No, they did not. I mean, because they, what they, they actually, the legislative history mentions the fact that their uh, a patent expiration and people might be trying to get trademark protection after the expiration of a patent, well, and I, then they I, go on to add functionality. Yeah, I, I, you, you, I thought part of your argument was that the Tenth Circuit had decided this case in 1995, and it was, quote, before, close quote, Congress at the time it made the amendments. Uh, what is the purport of that? Oh, uh, well, what I'm saying is that in 1995, that Fernando case was, was there. In 1998, Congress amended the Trademark Act. Now, there's no legislative history I can see that actually mentioned the uh, Bernardo well, case. I'm saying that it, it probably was not their attention. Uh, you're arguing, I hope, something more than post hoc ergo propto. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes, I am, Your Honor. you go back to Justice O'Connor, which I thought was the key question, and I didn't yes. hear the answer. I mean, I, I know Qualitech's. I'm not surprised not at your reading, because that's your job, but I'm pretty surprised at the Tenth Circuit the Court, which I learned you read the whole case, what the context is, not just a sentence taken out of context. So I obviously thought that Qualitex was about a doctrine called aesthetic functionality. I thought on page 165, the, with the Court quotes the traditional, it's in quotes, the definition, a product feature is functional. If it is essential to the use or purpose of this article, all in quotes, or if it affects the cost or quality of the article, okay, end of the matter. Now, it adds, because that's what happens to be relevant to aesthetic functionality, that is, if exclusive use of the feature would put competitors at a significant non-reputational disadvantage. That last clause is relevant to what happens to be the subject of this case, called aesthetic functionality. Two pages later, in case that wasn't clear. The case quotes restatement third about aesthetic functionality and says in respect to aesthetic functionality, i.e. color, quote, the ultimate test is whether the recognition of trademark rights would significantly hinder competition. All right? Yes. But nothing in the case no. purports to change any earlier test in respect to anything else That's or even change anything there. So, so as I read the case, that seemed to be its reading which would say, in this case, which isn't about aesthetic functionality, we apply what is the traditional test. Well, every case which has actually looked at functionality actually has come up with the result that the Sixth Circuit did, the Seventh Circuit did. Maybe, but I thought the place you look for a test is in the Supreme Court opinions. And And in the Supreme Court opinions, Qualitex quotes the traditional test. It didn't make it up. That's correct. It said, in general terms, a product feature is functional if it is essential to the use or purpose of this article or it affects the cost or quality of the article. That's all in quotes. The rest is explanation is applied here. So if we take that as the test, why isn't that the test? Well, the Supreme Court goes on in the Qualitex case and says that is, that is, if exclusive use of the feature would put competitors a significant non-reputational related to But that was my question. My yes. question was, as to that add-on, doesn't that have to do with an explanation of the test as relevant to the issue before the court in Qualitex, I think namely aesthetic functionality, which is an aspect of quality I think that, that people is could argue about? I think that is the test, Your Honor. Whether it's or not test in a case of aesthetic functionality. Yes. Fine. Is this a case of aesthetic functionality? I believe it is, yes. Aesthetic? It involves color? It involves how things look. 
the appearance, visual well, appearance. Everything in design involves how things look. Okay. I mean, that's What's aesthetic in that sense? But it's not, it doesn't involve color. No, it does not. It's not like the, the color that was allowed in the Qualitex case. But I it think that is the size and shape and this discussion about politics and aesthetic functionality doesn't get into um, what effect the patent, if any, has on functionality. In, in your view, does the patent — you're having had a patent, building up goodwill free over 20 years. Nobody can compete with that. So you, if you've got secondary meaning, it's because you had been able to keep everybody off. We've been dealing with cases in your discussion where there was no patent in the picture. How should the fact that there was a patent bear on the inquiry that was made in cases where there was no patent? Um, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I, I think that the uh the case Midwest case by the Federal Circuit, the Thomas and Best case, the Seventh Circuit, our case, Sixth Circuit, and the Sunbeam case, Fifth Circuit, all uh, apply the proper test. Uh, the, there are different forms in intellectual property law, or IP law, as I call them. You've got five different, basically, federal laws on intellectual property, patents, copyrights, uh, trademarks, trade dress, unfair competition. They're all separate and distinct. The fact you have a patent on something, that is different than whether or not you can have a trade dress on something. Patent would be relevant in the sense that under this commercial necessity test, if there's only one way to make that product of his look and appearance, then it's functional. And so in that sense, the functionality test would apply, and the patent, if it has something about the functionality, that would be relevant to the functionality test in the trade dress area. But they're separate and distinct, and they always have. Like design patents, for example. They may be separate and distinct, but they, but they bear upon one another. And there seems to be something horribly unfair about allowing someone who has acquired a secondary meaning in the trade dress only because of the patent. Let's say, let's say the shape of a Coca-Cola bottle. I mean, you know, if, if that wasn't patented, Somebody else could have come out with a with the same shaped bottle as soon as it, you know as soon as the first ones came off the line they could say gee that's a nice looking bottle, and they could have copied it, but you couldn't copy it because it was patented, and therefore by reason of the patent for 17 years Coca Cola acquires a secondary meaning. Anyone sees that bottle and say it's Coca Cola. Then, when the patent expires, Coca Cola in effect extends the patent by parlaying what was was the, de, the design patent into what is now trade dress protection because they say, well, gee, everybody knows that that's a Coca-Cola bottle. But the only reason they know it is because you've been given a monopoly for 17 years. And it doesn't seem right to enable you to extend that monopoly indefinitely. The only reason you acquired the secondary meaning was because of the patent. That's unlike other, other companies that get secondary meanings without a patent. Doesn't there seem any... Incompatibility with the patent law to you? No, I don't think it's unfair at all, Your Honor. I think they're separate and distinct. I agree that perhaps if you have this 17-year monopoly on this patent, that might help you on the trade dress area with respect to secondary meaning. But then, of course, just as we found here, the functionality test, the fact you had a patent on it, actually hurts you. There might be a wash between those two. The trade dress has several, three separate and distinct tests. You have to show it's distinctive, 
In other words, it has secondary meaning as the public recognizes it as something which comes from a certain source. It's a source identifier. You have to show it's non-functional. Well, a trademark law has been amended which specifically says you have that burden of proof. It's unregistered. You have to show it's non-functional. Under the Qualtex case, my opinion, you have to show whether it's competitive necessity. Then you've got to show us a likelihood of confusion. You may have a product that looks exactly the same as yours, but if you can't show us likelihood of confusion, you don't win. You need all three of those tests in the trade dress area. Well, it, the it's, it's the second that we're arguing about, I think. I think it's, it's the second, uh, when you have to show that it's functional. And I find it hard to think that it's not functional when you have a patent on it. You, you only give what, patents to things that are, that are functional. I think functionality, Your Honor, legal functionality is really a misnomer, like, like I, I believe in the Walmart case, uh, secondary meaning was looked at as being a misnomer. It's really acquired meaning. You acquire meaning afterward. Legal functionality really is a misnomer. It's, every product has a function. The Coke bottle has a function, obviously. It's useful. It has a purpose. It's got a flat bottom so it doesn't tip over. It's got a narrow way so you can grab it, a narrow spout so you can drink it easier. It's clear so you can see it. Those are all functional, useful, purposeful. A- aesthetic functionality isn't conceivably in this case. They're the ones that argue functionality, not you. They're the ones that say that the product is functional. They're not saying that the functionality of your product arises from the way it looks. They're not saying, like color, it warns people that the boat's black. They're saying that the functionality of the product is that the springs prevent it from twisting in the wind. Now, that isn't a claim of aesthetic functionality, and I don't see how you could even closely claim that it is. I think the functionality test that's been developed in in Qualitex applies to any type of trade dress. Ah, wait, I thought what you said is you agreed with me before that Qualitex is talking about aesthetic functionality, that we apply the normal test without that little add-on, but we apply restatement three. The aesthetic functionality test, which is the add-on, where they make a claim that the reason this product is functional is because of the way it looks, i.e., the pipes are painted orange as a warning, which is not their claim in this case. Am I, now, where am I wrong in that? I think the test that's set forth in Qualitex that, that uh, Your Honor says is for just aesthetic functionality applies in every functionality test. I think that's so the test. So then the page is written at 169 and 170 and trying to explain just what we're driving at or sort of beside the point. Yeah, it says in general terms a product feature is functional and cannot serve if, and then you say it's essential to the use or purpose. I mean, that's broad and ambiguous. Everything has a use or purpose. And then you say if it's... Uh, affects the cost or quality. Virtually everything affects the cost or quality. So it seems to me the only objective test you have here, because it relates to competitors and consumers, is whether or not it puts competitors at a significant disadvantage of the marketplace. Can we apply that test? Because I'm having a little trouble connecting to the real world and the device before us and these multi-factor tests and even what, what you've just been saying. Tell me what it is in your um, formally patented device that traffics can copy now that the patent has expired. Can it make a sign with those two coiled springs adjacent to each other? Uh, yes, it can, Your Honor. If you could describe to me what it can copy and what it must change, I would have a more secure handle on what your case is. All right. Our, our trade dress, Your Honor, it's really a combination of five features. It's got your X-shaped legs, a narrow base, a 
a pair of upright vertical coral springs, an upright uh, attached to that, as well as this diamond-shaped sign above it. Uh, I have a, a model of it that actually shows what it is here. This is in the record before the Court of Appeals. Now, it, they could change any more one of those. They could keep the coral springs if they change some other configuration to make it look different, to give a visual, different visual appearance. Like right now, even the vice president and their technical expert say that when they see a sign saying like this or driving on the road, they know it comes from marketing displays. They know it's a windmaster. But there aren't that many things to adjust. I mean, one of the things about Polytex and the green gold, you could have tan, silver, any, any number of combinations that would serve that purpose. But for that road sign that's not going to blow in the wind, uh, you have to have those springs, and you have to have some kind of base, and there aren't that many variations. And the law requires the shape of the sign. I mean, in, in, in many states, that shape of a sign indicates a certain type of warning. So what's left? There's nothing left but the legs. You can, and, have, you can have a different upright. And, and your, your friend over there says that they changed the legs. They did change the legs. Well, no, they Somebody the legs. Who, who sees their legs say, gee, it has the, what do, what do they call them, step-down legs or whatever it is. So the one thing it seemed to me that they could have changed, they did change. No, they kept the same visual appearance and image, Your Honor. This is what the patent covered, a product such as this. They could have gone to something like this with a wide base, pair of springs way apart. They could have gone to straight legs like this. They could have gone from upright like this rather than this and attached the sign to it. This is what the patent covered. This is what's shown in the patent. This is only found to infringe under the doctrine of equivalence, which took several years and several thousands of dollars for MDI to prove it. And that's a problem with a per se test. Because My that opinion. one in your right hand probably works better. I think so. <laughs> yeah, and that's why they wanted to copy it and not something that worked less well. Well, the, well, the thing here is, is a competitive necessity test. I think it's important because there are really like eight competitors in this marketplace, the MDI, Travix, and six others. Six others all came up with sign stands which look different. They have different spring mechanisms in particular. It's a flat spring, it's a horizontal spring, it's a torsion spring. And so Traffic says... I had to copy MBIs, yet all the other competitors made their own design. They came out with sign stands which look different, have a different visual appearance. So there are seven types of sign stands out there, MDIs, six others, and then traffic. Now, I have to confess that I'm, I find it a little difficult to imagine that the most motorists are looking at what's the, the legs of the sign instead of the message on the sign. <laughs> <laughs> I find it hard to believe that people really identify with two legs instead of three. I don't have the slightest idea how many legs there were on most of the signs I've looked at when I was driving along. I, I've been looking in the last week. It's very interesting. <laughs> Gather, I gather you don't care about the motorists. You just care about the, the highway purchasing departments. That's it. Yeah, the test confusion as to the purchase. Yeah. Who are the relative You couldn't care less about the motorists. Could I ask you want to sell the sign. <laughs> could I ask you a question about the patent part? I'd like to ask you about the patent part. And will you assume for purpose of this that Qualitex is about color, which is a matter that doesn't easily fit within the terms, you know, purpose, use, cost, or quality? And suppose here we're, fit, we're dealing with something that does easily fit within those terms. All right, so keep Qualitex out of it. Now, assuming that that's so, what would be wrong? And they come in and they say, look, these springs are part of the, of the, of the function. They're part of the function. They're, they're, they're essential to the use, these springs, in this way. Now, should there be an absolute presumption that if you one day said, I'm not saying what you did say, but we'll assume this. If you one day said in the patent application, well, I have a great idea here 
And my idea is to have two springs just like this. And then later on, when it's expired, they say that was the heart of it, it was useful. Should the fact that you said that one day in the patent be the end of the matter? Nobody ever looks further. There is a con- what the government said here is where as expired utility patent discloses that the feature alleges trade dress contributes to the operation of the formerly patented device, the feature must be considered functional. That's the government's suggestion. All right. Now, you can, of course, argue that wasn't essential, et cetera, but, but uh, my, my problem's a general one, leaving this case out of it. Should that be the test? No, it should not be the test. Because? I, I, because I think what you say in a patent could be relevant, and the patent obviously is going to be put into every trade dress case, and as one of the reasons I think the trade dress test, that their absolute test is unworkable, because in every trademark case now, what you're going to have is the defendant's going to run out, scour the five million expired patents, find one which has a claim which may read on this trade dress, the accused trade dress, and say, aha, it's dedicated to the public on this other, somebody else's patent. See, one of the things that... But it seemed to me that 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 would be, even under your rule, uh, um, well, maybe not under your rule, but under the government's rule, uh, quite an an appropriate thing to do to show that there is functionality that 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 the patent office has recognized. Well, again, I don't want to confuse legal functionality with something that's useful in purpose, because legal functionality is different. It's a legal test. It means, as, as uh, in the Qualitex case, I believe, or it means whether there's a competitive necessity to use it. And just now, recently, in the 1998-1999, Congress made amendments to the Lanham Act, and it did not sit, go for an absolute test. It did not go for a test for useful or purpose. What it did, it just said if it's a you know, burden of proof of functionality is going to be on the uh, a party saying it's non-functional? Mr. Arch, I, I, I haven't realized it. I, you are not complaining about their use of the double spring feature. That's, that's not the complaint. You said they could have no. used the double springs if they had put them yes. separate, separately in a part. Also different visual image and appearance, Your Honor. And the double springs next to each other was not part of your original patent application. No, it was not. That they were originally apart. That's right. So the issue really is simply the functionality of putting the springs close together. Now, what if putting the springs close together, it would have nothing to do with the patent, but what if putting the springs close together makes, makes the sign more stable? Actually, technically, it would make it less stable. It would make it more, easier, more easier to twist. Okay. If, if it made it more stable, then, then you would acknowledge that they could copy even that feature, the unpatented. No, they have an improvement in performance that they say is yeah. more stable, but doesn't mean they can still copy it if it's part of our trade dress. It's di- the, our trade dress is a number of features, as I mentioned before. It's not just the coral springs. They could use coral springs close together as long as they change the base or change the legs or change something which gave it a different visual appearance to the public. See, the, one of the, the touchstones here, the tra- Trademark Lanham Act, is to prevent confusion of the public, the public buying this. You don't want to confuse or deceive the public, which this does. It was well, massive. The public con- isn't buying it. It's highway departments that are buying it. The public isn't buying this sign, is it? That's the relevant public for this purpose, Your Honor. Yes. Yeah, the, the it's the highway department this. purchasers. That's and regulate the shape of the sign, as Justice Scalia asked you? There, yes. I mean, there, diamond shape indicates a certain kind of warning, does it not? Correct. So they can use that shape and color, presumably. That's necessary. Yes, I agree. So what are we arguing about? The, the legs? The, you know, the legs, the shape of the base the, and the springs, and then the upright. It has a single upright, too. This doesn't have a single upright because it's a small model. It, it well, what is the base? 
after you get through with the legs and the upright and the springs. Mm -hmm. I mean, could you, you you indicate what are we arguing about, the legs and the base? Well, there's no, I don't think there's any doubt that these have a different visual appearance. One is a wide base, one is a narrow base. One has straight legs, one has uh, X-shaped legs. So when you say base, that really is another way of saying the legs? Well, no, it's what the legs are attached to. It would be this, this part in between the legs. And here are the bases. It's what the, what the legs are connected to. But obviously you're holding up one that's a rectangle, so it makes sense to have the posts on either side as opposed to the diamond shape where it makes sense to have it in the middle. Well, I mean, that, you're not showing us an equivalent shape sign. Well, this under doctrine of equivalence, this is held to be an infringement. But, right, in visual appearance, I think they are different. And so from a trade dress standpoint, these are two different products. Well, you're, you're willing to fight out the, uh, I gather, you're willing to fight out the functionality uh, battle as to whether uh, putting, putting the two springs right next to each other instead of apart uh, is a functional uh, matter. You're, you're willing to, are, are you willing to combat on, on that ground? Uh, well, I, whether it's useful has a purpose. I mean, if that's a t- functionality. Whether it's functional within the meaning of the trade dress uh, restriction. Well, then, then the answer, I, I agree, I think is no, because is there a competitive necessity to have them together? The answer is okay, no. But, but you, you would agree that that, it, that that inquiry would be addressed to the spacing of the springs. Only even, to- even if we think that the use of, of double springs is automatically no basis for giving you trade dress protection since you had patented the double springs. You hadn't patented whether they were close together or far apart. And so whether putting them close together as your opponent did uh, is, is a violation of trade dress protection would depend upon whether putting them close together is functional within the meaning of trade dress law, right? It's whether or not their whole... Uh, the whole visual appearance, the, uh, the combination of five features is, is functional in the, in the competitive necessity test. And yeah. That's I why I left it. A minute ago, acknowledged that if, if, the, if the two springs were closer together, it would be less, less wind resistant than otherwise, which seems to me demonstrates it has some functional significance, whether they're close or not. If one is a better resistant to the wind than the other, it doesn't, isn't that functional? Isn't that enough to prove functionality? Not the legal functionality test is set Not under all these tests, but why shouldn't it be enough? I, the government argues that the, the competitive need is a sufficient proof, but not a necessary proof of, uh, that is a defense to the trade desk argument. Well, well, the problem you have, uh, Your Honor, is that test, either, either government's test or traffic's test is going to be unworkable because you could have company A that makes this product or comes up with this idea, company B. Company A gets a patent on it, goes 17 years. Company B doesn't get a patent and, and gets trade dress protection on it. And yet company A, for some reason, doesn't sue them. But when this patent expires, that means all the trade dress that company B has developed over all those years is shot. It's off the window because it happens to be the subject of a patent. So that's the problem with this per se test that, that they're saying. I don't — I thought as a factual matter that there are five features in your patent, including the legs, all the other things of appearance, but the district court found that there are a lot of other competitors that have every one of those features, so it's not unique, but for the spaced-apart coil springs. Mm-hmm. So that all were — is that true? Uh, that is true. All right. So all we're talking about — and I thought also as a factual matter that somebody, before the patent expired, used — 
those two spaced-apart springs in that narrow configuration that your finger's on right now, mm -hmm. and you sued them, and it was found in your claim, in your view, those spaced-apart that much, not wide-apart, violated your patent, and you won. Well, the patent covered several other things other than that. They, they had to have initial compression among the corals of the spring. You also had to meet a certain geometric relationship with the center of gravity. They didn't get out of it. They didn't get out of your patent because, because the springs were close together rather than being far apart. Well, well that's the doctrine of equivalence on one language of the claim which called for space-apart springs. And we, right. it was equivalent from a patent standpoint whether two springs together were the equivalent of two springs that's space right. apart. So I, that was I, that issue. Yeah. It was only one of several issues in that patent case. And the, and the fact that the others haven't used this coral spring, they, they use the other parts. That shows you that you can change one or two parts of this particular trade dress and come look, have something that looks completely different. In that case, the competitors made a flat spring, they made a horizontal spring, they put two springs at 45 degree angles. Uh, you, could, you could change the legs, you could change the upright. All of those might give a different visual impression. And that's what the Sixth Circuit said. See, the district court in this case concentrated on just the two springs, and the Sixth Circuit said that was not proper because it's overall appearance, visual visual appearance, uh, an image of the product, which really controls. But you can't look at one. To me, if the different spacing is the function, is a functional equivalent for patent law, okay. then it seems to me that the spacing of the springs is part of your patent protection. All right. As well as, uh, as, well as the nature of the springs. And so the, the square stand is no different for purposes of the issue in this case than the, uh, than, than the diamond-shaped stand. Uh, as long as you don't confuse the patent law with the trade dress law, you're under two separate and distinct. If from a patent law standpoint, you're right, but, and, uh, but not from the uh, trade dress standpoint. There's another — right now, we're looking at the public domain. The difference is where it comes from. If it comes from a patent, it's given special uh, recognition. You can't use it as a trade dress, but if it doesn't, then you can use it. Now, that, to me, is, is, is not a real uh, consistent or a real consistent argument. Uh, you also have the fact that as, uh, where do you look at the trade dress on this functionality? Look at one patent, look at two patents. Well, there's several patents that show it. You know, what if you don't even own the patent? What if we were just licensing and asserted it? What if you didn't own it? What does that make a difference? Well, if the third party owns the patent. There are several things, questions we raised in the back of our brief that traffics and the government really can't answer. They, they really do admit that if someone is the subject matter of one patent by one person and expires, expires, somebody else's trade dress will expire. I mean, right now we also have a situation where they're trying to get special uh, pr uh, protection for utility patents, which is different than, for example, for design patents. Now, talk about something being non-functional, design patent, and which having this right, as you mentioned before, of, of, of an exclusive period of 14 years to develop secondary meaning. There's no question whatsoever that courts do allow parties to get trade dress protection in the subject matter of design patents. And there you've got this secondary meaning over 14 years in which you've used exclusively, and that goes to the look and appearance of the product. But there's no problem with having trade dress protection afterwards because it isn't functional. So why should utility patents be treated any differently? As I said initially, there are different areas of intellectual property law. They have different standards, different tests, different remedies. You know, trade dress law you have, and trademark law, you have much different remedies to protect the public and consumers. Here. Thank you, Mr. Arts. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Roberts, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you, Your Honor. There was until this morning no dispute that moving the springs closer together was functional. If you look at petition appendix page 54A, there is the uh, explanation from MDI's chief engineer that doing so makes the sign more compact 
and weighs less, very important if you're ferrying these things up and down the highway, and also makes it less expensive to manufacture. As far as the two different sign stands, uh, the, the diamond one with the closely spaced springs, Joint Appendix, page 236, MDI said that those signs, even though the other one was depicted in their patent, that the closely spaced springs were, quote, slavish copies from the standpoint of function of the sign sand described and claimed in the Sartesian patents. Third, that is the form in which they practice their patent, the closely spaced springs. Kellogg, Singer, Sears, that line of cases gives traffic's devices and any member of the public the right to copy the patent in the form in which it was practiced. That is critically important to maintain competition. Whether you begin with patent law and the right to copy from an expired patent or trade dress law and the definition of functionality that focuses on usefulness, is it a useful product figure, you come to the same point. Traffic's devices had the right to copy the MDI sign stand when it came off patent, and it did so, it did so in the way Benito Boats explains, enhances competition, imitation and refinement through imitation by adding an improvement of its own that made a more competitive product better for highway safety departments. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Roberts. The case is submitted.